You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. I am Nicole, a member of the committee staff, and I'm joined today by national security lawyers who are here in, the, in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or company. We're glad you're here, and today we're going to talk about something most national security lawyers have to consider, and that is the future of surveillance in the United States. Our guest is Bob Litt, former general counsel at ODNI, now practicing law at Morrison and Forrester. Boy, were they lucky when they scored you. Um, and Bob is a guy who's given this area of law considerable thought, probably more than almost anyone I could think of right now. Well, um, thanks for having me, Elisa. This is an interesting and important issue. Um, and one that I think we're going to have to have a lot of focus on in the next few years um, as we, first of all, have to reauthorize certain provisions of FISA, and then I think there needs to be some some consideration of how we want to have our intelligence surveillance activities constructed. So this is a good kickoff. It certainly is. All right, well, let's recap the history here. We're, uh, we have some uninitiated listeners, and then we have some seasoned experts in the field. But let's talk about the changes that have put the future of surveillance on a little less certain path. So I want to go back with a little history here. Some of this, for some of your listeners, may be old hat. Um, But I think you can't understand how we got where we are in national security surveillance without understanding the law enforcement background. So um, let's go back to 1928 and a case called Olmstead against the United States, um, which involved uh, bootlegging during Prohibition. Of course it did, right? (laughs) Um, And uh, the the Supreme Court in that case held that wiretapping did not violate the Fourth Amendment because the Fourth Amendment protects against unreasonable searches of persons, houses, papers, and effects. And in wiretapping, you're not searching persons, houses, papers, or effects. You're just listening to conversations. Um, That was the law until 1967 when the court decided uh, cats against the United States, which overruled Olmstead and established that the test for whether there was a search and seizure under the Fourth Amendment was whether there was the invasion of a reasonable expectation of privacy on part of the, part of the defendant. Um, and thus, wiretapping without a warrant uh, was uh, unconstitutional because you had a reasonable expectation of privacy in your conversations. Uh, Congress uh, responded by passing uh, Title III of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act of 1968, um, which required a warrant based on probable cause for law enforcement wiretapping, but did nothing to address wiretapping for national security purposes. Um, the next development was 1972, a uh, Supreme Court case called United States versus United States District Court. Um, it's generally referred to as the Keith case because it was in the form of a mandamus petition, and Judge Damon Keith was the uh, victim of the mandamus petition. Um, The case involved the bombing of a CIA office in Michigan by domestic terrorists. And the court held in that case that the president had no power under the Fourth Amendment to order warrantless wiretaps for domestic security purposes. But in a sentence in the course of the opinion, it said that uh, it expressed no opinion as to the issues which may be involved with respect to the activities of foreign powers or their agents. So again, it carved out sort of foreign intelligence surveillance. Um, Then you had the the Church and Pike Committees in the uh, mid-1970s, which uh, did uh, extensive reports on a variety of abuses by the intelligence agencies, including uh, the misuse of foreign intelligence authorities to conduct surveillance uh, domestically. 
And this led to the enactment of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act in 1978. The 1978 law is now Title I of FISA, sometimes called traditional FISA. Um, And it's important to understand that when you're talking about FISA, a lot of the language in FISA is very precise and technical. And so when I describe it here, in a, I'm going to be giving a kind of 30,000-foot skim, but, but it's not necessarily going to be precise in every single instant instantiation of FISA. But broadly speaking, uh, Title I established a warrant requirement to conduct foreign intelligence surveillance inside the United States. There were two important differences from criminal wiretaps. The first was that while the wiretap warrant uh, under FISA had to be based on probable cause, it wasn't probable cause to believe that a crime was being committed. It was probable cause to believe that the target of the surveillance is an agent of a foreign power or a foreign power. And second, the warrants were going to be issued by a new classified court, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, or FISC, uh, which is staffed on a rotating basis by federal judges. Since 1978, when Title I was passed, there have been several uh, additions to FISA. Uh, During the Clinton administration, there were uh, provisions added authorizing physical searches, the installation of pen register devices, uh, and orders to obtain a variety of business records uh, under FISA. Uh, All of these, again, using orders issued in secret by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And let's just clarify for the uninitiated, a pen register does nothing more than identify the uh, initiating and terminating lines. That's right. Um, uh, the time of the call, and basically that's it. Right. You don't know who's on the call. You don't know what the content was. Um, but those were authorized under FISA. And then the business records um, uh, was originally very narrow, uh, and then uh, after 9-11 was broadened to cover the full scope of business records. And again, without a warrant, but with an order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. The most important change to FISA came after 9-11. I don't want to get into the technical details here, but essentially the way Congress defined electronic surveillance in Title I of FISA was intended to exclude from the requirement of a warrant intelligence surveillance of non-U.S. persons who were outside the United States. So, if the United States wanted to wiretap Vladimir Putin, we wouldn't have to go to the fire to the FISA court to get an order. And underpinning that, perhaps, Bob, was it a, a sense that look, these people aren't protected by the U.S. Constitution? That's correct. Just to start, it's a combination of these people aren't protected by the U.S. Constitution and the president's inherent powers uh, in the national security area as commander in chief. Um, but what happened was over time, because of technological changes in the way international communications were transmitted and because of the growth of U.S.-based email services that a lot of non-Americans used, uh, it turned out that more and more the government was having to go, because of these particular definitions, was having to go to the FISA court to conduct surveillance of non-Americans outside the United States. And so this led first to a warrantless surveillance program initiated by the Bush administration, and then in 2008 Congress passed the FISA Amendments Act. The most important provision of that is now codified at Section 702 of FISA, which created a new um, court-supervised procedure for collecting communications of non-Americans outside the U.S. Um, And uh, without going into the details of it, basically what this did was the court on an annual basis would authorize procedures for conducting this surveillance, and then the intelligence community could identify targets for that surveillance 
but didn't have to go back to the court to get permission for each target. And this is a, a, probably the most important source of foreign intelligence information that we have today. Um, for, to, just to give an example that people might be familiar with, if you've been following, and I caution here that I know nothing beyond what's in the public record here. I'm not speaking from any uh, inside information, but if you read some of the indictments that uh, Special Counsel Mueller has returned, he's got a lot of information in there about emails that Russians were sending each other. Um, I believe it's highly likely that those emails were collected using the authority of Section 702. These would have been non-Americans outside the U.S. using U.S. Um, facilities to, uh, to communicate via email. Um, even after Section 702, however, FISA still does not reach intelligence surveillance activities that are conducted outside the United States that are not targeting Americans. For example, again, to, go, to give the example, if we want to wiretap Vladimir Putin in Moscow, we do not have to use Section 702. We don't have to use Title I of FISA. That is done pursuant to the president's authority. The last uh, important development in terms of where surveillance law is going in the future is Edward Snowden, um, because um, I have some pretty strong views about what he did, but the net effect was to create, to expose a lot of classified activity and put a lot of pressure on these activities. Yeah, he chose an interesting location to... Uh to go to, to yes. go to. yeah, yeah, um, or two of them actually. If you think about the skip and hop, yes. Well, yeah. um, um, uh, he uh, I, he has to be thinking that he's got the sword of Damocles over his head if he's relying on the good the goodwill of Vladimir Putin. But but the net result of this has been a lot more transparency on behalf of the intelligence community of what they do, and a lot more sort of public discussion about what the rules ought to be. Um, by and large, Section 702 and Title I of FISA have not been significantly affected. Uh, the business records provision was narrowed significantly um, to prevent the government from using that to collect telephone records in bulk, which it had been doing under the business record provision. So that is a very high-level summary of where, where we are in uh, national security surveillance today and how we got there. That's a nice... A nice summary. Thanks very much. But All right. So the Fourth Amendment, let's talk a little bit more about one of the issues that you've raised, and let's sort of drill down on that. Um, we're living in an interesting time right now where we are ceding uh, so much information to private companies. I would say the average person is unaware. But the Fourth Amendment only states that people have a right to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects, as you mentioned, and against unreasonable searches and seizures, and that this security cannot be violated unless there's probable cause to conduct a search and a clear description of the place, sounding physical, um, to be searched or the person's seed. Now we've got geolocation information, which doesn't fit neatly into this concept. So how do we get to Carpenter through a, a trail of jurisprudence that, uh, to me, often in the moment when it is decided, seems of another era technologically? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and not once or twice, but I mean, many of these cases, by the time they're decided, there's some technology that has been developed that really kind of changes the analysis. So please share your thoughts on this score. So, so Carpenter is really the third case in which the Supreme Court uh, under Chief Justice Roberts has, has revisited traditional Fourth Amendment doctrines um, in light of modern technology. Um, the first of these cases was a case called the United States versus Jones um, in 2012. Um, and this involved the sort of traditional doctrine that says you don't have an expectation of privacy in public behavior. 
when you're walking down the street, what you're doing is not private. Um, and so, for example, the government doesn't need a warrant to conduct surveillance of somebody walking down the street. So what happened in Jones was that um, agents placed a GPS tracking device on the defendant's car and tracked him 24-7 for a period of four weeks. And the court held unanimously that you could not do this without a warrant. Um, interestingly, uh, the uh, Michael Dreben, who the solicitor gen- assistant to the solicitor general who argued the case, told me, uh, I heard him say once, uh, that um, he knew he was going to lose this case when one of the justices leaned over t- and, and said, Mr. Dreben, are you telling me that you could place one of these beepers on my car without a warrant? Uh, and when, when he said yes, that was the, he said he knew he was going to lose. Uh, he lost nine zip. Um, <laughs> That's a um, handy cue there, yes. Uh, the, 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 the court held that um, putting the tracker on the defendant's car without a warrant violated the Fourth Amendment. Majority of the court got there by saying it was a physical trespass because you were putting the, the beeper on his car. But in separate opinions, five justices also suggested that even though traditionally you have no right of privacy in your public movements, um, the long-term and sort of full-time nature of this monitoring uh, did invade a reasonable expectation of privacy. So that was the first case. The second case was a case called Riley against California in 2014, which involved the traditional um, uh, exception to the warrant requirement for a search incident to arrest. If a, if, a, if a law enforcement officer arrests somebody, they have a right to pat you down to make sure you're, you're not destroying evidence or, or you don't have anything dangerous on you. Um, but in that case, the court held that the, the, the right to search incident to, to arrest did not extend to searching a cell phone that the defendant was carrying. Um, the chief justice wrote that opinion, and he uh, memorably said that uh, comparing the search of a cell phone to search of other objects incident to arrest, and I'm quoting here, is like saying a ride on horseback is materially indistinguishable from a flight to the moon. Both are ways from getting from point A to point B, but little else justifies lumping them together. Um, So that was the second uh, sort of digital age case. And Carpenter was the third one. It was decided in 2017, and it's it's the most consequential of these cases because it's the one in which the court really, um, for the first time, um, bit the bullet on this issue. Carpenter involved the, the doctrine that says you don't have an expectation of privacy in, inv- in information that you voluntarily disclose to third parties, and therefore the government doesn't need a warrant to get that information from the third parties. And the doctrine developed in cases that involved um, bank records. If you know the bank keeps copies of all your checks, if the government goes to the bank to get them, it doesn't need a warrant. Um, or telephone records, um, to the extent that the phone company keeps, keeps records of all the, the, the telephone calls you dialed. If you're, if you're old enough, you remember when your monthly telephone bill used to list all the long-distance calls you made, and the, you could get, the government can get those without a warrant. Carpenter involved cell site information. When you make a call from your mobile phone, um, the telephone company keeps a record of the particular cell tower that your phone is connecting to, and that can be used to approximate your location. It's not accurate within t- two feet, but depending upon how many cell towers there are, it can give you a reasonable, precise estimate. And in Carpenter, the government was investigating a string of armed robberies and obtained from the telephone company cell site information about the defendant's phone covering about four months and was able to place Carpenter's phone and presumably Carpenter in the vicinity of several other robberies. 
And the court found that despite the traditional third-party rule, a warrant was required for this. Um, it relied partly on the fact that given the ubiquity of cell phones and their importance today, you're not really voluntarily disclosing the location information. You really have no choice. Um, and it also relied heavily on the fact that this kind of historical cell site information can be used to create, to be very revealing about a person's personal activities. The court made a point of saying that its holding was very limited. Um, and in particular, as, it, as the court had done in the Keith case, it said that it is not considering foreign affairs or national security matters. But it's very hard to imagine that the rationale of the opinion is not going to be applied in other contexts, including national security. The bottom line is, as of today, nobody really has a good idea of what's going to happen with Carpenter, other than that the court is going to look very hard at traditional Fourth Amendment doctrines as they apply to digital forms of communication. So Carpenter is a case, as you said, that is all about third-party consent, and there's a lot of different types of third-party consent that we engage with with our cell phones. Most of us have multiple applications that specifically ask for permission to track our locations. Do you think that the presence of all of these different third parties together in one phone could have potentially changed the nature of the Carpenter decision and that instead of one cell phone telecommunications provider, uh, the Carpenter might have been decided differently if it were to zoom out and look at the smartphone app universe? So that's a really good question. Um, there were several dissenting opinions in Carpenter. Um, I think that if you take sort of the narrow view of Carpenter and you focus on the aspect of Carpenter that said um, you're not really voluntarily consenting because you really have no choice but to use cell phones, um, then you might conclude that if you have an app on your phone that geolocates and you consent to that app collecting geolocation data about you, that that might be different. Um, uh, because unlike cell phones, you don't need to have angry birds on your phone or, or, or whatever it is. Um, I think that's probably not going to prove to be the case for a couple of reasons. One is that the consent that you give for an app um, is barely more voluntary than the consent you give when you hook up your phone. I mean, have you ever actually read the disclosures before you click and say, I agree? I have. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> you, are, you, are, you are unusual in that regard. Um, but it's also important to remember that the court focused not only on the issue of consent, but it also focused on the nature of the data being collected and the significant amounts of information that could be revealed from geolocation tracking. I mean, it can see when you're going to a, an abortion clinic. It can see when you're going to your, your mistress. It can see when you're going to a drug rehab center. All the kinds of personal private information that could be revealed by geolocation. Um, and that aspect is the same whether the geolocation data is collected by the phone company or by an app on your phone. Um, I personally think that the court's emphasis on that really uh, does not adequately distinguish the geo, the cell site information that was at issue in Carpenter from prior cases. I, I just don't find it convincing to say that the information you get from cell towers is so much more personally invasive than information that you get from uh, getting a full dump of your bank and credit card records or every telephone call you've been making. 
Um, and so I think this is going to be one of those cases where the court said, well, this is a very narrow decision that applies only in this case. And then when the next case comes up, they say, well, this is no different. We have to extend it to here as well. So actually, I think that, that Carpenter is going to prefigure a, lo- a much broader um, cutback in the third-party doctrine, at least, again, as it's applied to this kind of digital data. I mean, I'd like to, to, to challenge that just a little, if I might, which is, um, I think one of the concerns that I have looking at all this right now is people really don't know where their data is going. And so it's one thing to say I agree to be geolocated. I mean, one of the values, monetary values that you provide for these free apps is targeted advertising, among other things. But you really don't know where that data is going. It could be going to a foreign government um, there's really no limitation uh, placed on this stuff. And so to the extent that we're all just buying into it wholesale, um, I do wonder if at some point sort of the reality of what we're seeding to not just one company, one carrier, one app, but, you know, in many instances, 12, 13, 14, whatever you have on, on your phone to manage your life, um, if at some point there's just going to reach a critical mass and we're going to have to have some, some kind of legislative fix. So what are your thoughts on that? You know, in, in Europe, they've passed the, the General Data Protection Regulation, which is a, a essentially a comprehensive regulation about uh, how much, how much, and under what circumstances companies can collect personal data about you and what they can do with that, and the kind of consent they have to get from you before they collect it. And I just saw something today that said that um, an, an agency in Germany. Um, they don't remember whether it was their data protection agency or another agency, or their anti I think maybe been their antitrust regulator, has told Facebook that it can no longer aggregate data. It has to keep data about you separate. It can't mash it all together. Right. The idea is they take whatever information that you convey and they supposedly anonymize it. They put it together with a bunch of other data so it's not identifiable right. to you. So so the Europeans have, have gone very far in, in providing this kind of privacy protection. Um, California has passed recently uh, a fairly comprehensive uh, data protection law. And I, I think it's inevitable that we're going to have federal legislation of some sort that um, provides some restrictions on what private companies can, can do with data. Because uh, I, I, I think that it is that you're right. It's going to reach a critical mass where people say, on the one hand, we need these services. On the other hand, you, you can't just do whatever you want with personal data about me. It'll be interesting to see how uh, the tech, tech sector landscape changes that occurs, because I think that will have a seismic effect. Well, I, the, the tech companies are very important and influential, and I suspect that whatever law is passed, I think it's going to be passed in a way that enables them to feel like they can still do business, um, even, if they, even if they are uh, required to change their ways of doing business. I mean, after all, they're still doing business in Europe after GDPR. They are. And the one thing that the GDPR does set forth is that any um, use of your data just has to be clear. You know, it has to be in plain language. You have to be able to understand it, which is just completely sane in my yeah. estimation. And they have a number of derogations, however broad they may be, that would allow law enforcement in certain circumstances to get a hold of it, or if there's some public health crisis, something that's an emergency nature. So they've built a few things into it that, that make sense. One, one of the things about the GDPR that I'm sure people have noticed over the last few months is many websites, when you open them up, now there's a big banner that says, this website uses cookies. 
Um, if you want to manage your cookies, click here. Right? If you agree, click here. Those are all a result of GDPR. Yeah, yeah. And I, I do think it's helpful. I do think cyber education, I hope, will uh, sort of deal with a lot of this right now that I think we're struggling with. All right, you have also written, um, and we're going to hyperlink uh, this article in the notes to the cast today, but you've also said that a reasonable expectations of privacy standard, or I used to, I had a little way that I would describe it. I had an abbreviation for it. I call it a legitimate expectation of privacy um, in the area searched or things searched, a LEPA standard. It's not the right one anymore. Um, it's not really what the courts should apply before determining whether or not a search is justified under the Fourth Amendment. So if we let go of this this precious yet vague thing, what do we have in its wake? So this is this is actually a piece that I that I wrote um, for the Yale Law Journal's online forum, and it actually grew out of remarks I gave at a dinner that the Standing Committee had a couple of years ago. Uh, that was where the, the thoughts first started to crystallize. And what I did basically was I, I looked at a couple of cases involving national security surveillance that were then pending, one involving Section 702 and one involving this um, uh, telephone uh, phone records collection. And I tried to draw some principles out of them. And, I, you know, as, as we said earlier, under traditional Fourth Amendment doctrine, um, the existence of a reasonable expectation of privacy determines whether or not there is a search or seizure. Um, it's sort of an on-off switch for the application of the Fourth Amendment. If you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the information or the, or the place being searched, then a warrant is required. If you don't, then a warrant isn't required. And if you gave the data to a third party, and remember, I wrote this before Carpenter, if you gave the data to a third party, then you don't have an expectation of privacy and a warrant isn't required. And what I argued was that in the context of digital data, um, that really didn't make sense. It is, it was, it's so hard to kind of parse out, do you have a legitimate expectation of privacy? For example, if your emails, if you use Gmail, and your emails are stored on Google's server, do you have a legitimate expectation of privacy in those emails? They're sitting on Google's server. And where? What country? Yeah, it, not, not a could, clue. Could be in any country. And what are they doing with what they get from it? Exactly. And, and so I felt that for, for some of the kinds of reasons the court ended up talking about in Carpentry a year later, I felt that, that we ought to move away from that concept as an on-off switch for application of the Fourth Amendment and, and suggested that maybe we move towards more of a sliding scale where in determining whether a warrant was required, a court would look at the nature of the data involved, the steps that a person took to protect it, um, the need that the government, the use the government wants to put to the data, uh, and most importantly, the kind of restrictions and controls on the government, who has access to the data, what they can do with it, and so on, and and use that to determine whether a warrant should be required, rather than just expectation of privacy, yes, no expectation of privacy, no. And I made the point that, that the, the language of the Fourth Amendment itself, of course, says nothing about reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, it, that came into into existence with cats, um, and it's now been half a century since cats is a time of tremendous technological change. Maybe it's time to reconsider cats. Um, I thought it was a brilliant paper. Um, nobody else seems to have thought that. Uh, I haven't. I, I haven't, suspect it was brilliant. <laughs> I haven't seen any court adopted, and, and the court, uh, while there were a number of very thoughtful and interesting opinions in Carpenter, um, none of them went that way. Um, so, uh, but it's still out there.
Well, maybe someone will take a look at it now because we're certainly <laughs> going to raise it. Um, yeah, and the Katz family, they seem to have popped up a lot, right? In the case before Judge Leon, you know, back in the 60s, yeah. I think they must, there's some lineage thing going on there. <laughs> All right, so why, you know, we've talked a lot in the most recent uh, podcasts that we've done about, um, you know, sort of our political divisions right now and, frankly, Congress's inability seemingly to get important things done. And or so, even, um, or, or get trivial things done for yeah, that matter as well. Yeah, trivial, keep the government open, right. Um what will we do here? Amend the U.S. Code to establish a fact-based standard um, rather than ceding these questions to the Supreme Court over and over again when it is apparent, I'll be blunt, that some of them didn't quite understand the technology. I mean, Sotomayor said something about, you know, thinking that it could somehow know she was in her, I think she said dressing room. She must have one of those. It sounds lovely. Um, but, I, I, you know, what is this going to, how do we fix this? How could they fix it if they, you know, spoke to one another and so, I, I mean, in an ideal world, um, Congress would hold a series of hearings, um, take testimony from a variety of experts about how technology is changing the balance between security and privacy that our laws reflect. And over the course of a couple of years, um, it would uh, consider whether our existing rules need to be modified. I mean, FISA did not... Um, spring full-blown from Congress's brain. There were several years of hearings leading up to that. These are complicated issues that, that would benefit from a, from a serious analysis. Um, obviously, Congress cannot enact laws that violate the Fourth Amendment. Um, but the, the touchstone of the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness. It is, you know, the, you, we have a right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. And I think that historically, when Congress has engaged in a sort of reasoned and measured consideration and has come up with legislation, the courts will afford some sort of deference in, in assessing whether that meets the reasonableness standard. Um, unfortunately, for the reasons you articulated, I don't think that's a very likely, um, a likely outcome. Um, a number of the provisions of FISA have sunsets on them, which means they have to be reauthorized every few years. And you would think that those that would be an occasion for sort of reasoned debate about what what the necessary authorities are and how they're carried out. And instead, every time what happens is they 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 kick the can down the road. They kick the can down the road. They come up to the deadline, and at the last minute, they pass something. Um, it's 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 not a pretty process, and it's not the way these things ought to be legislated. But ideally, we'd be engaged right now in a long-term process of evaluating. Um, how, what kind of surveillance authorities should government should the government have in the in light of the current means of communications? Yeah, I like what you said at the very end there, the current means of communications, because um, I, I would like to talk to futurists about where they really think we'll be in another decade. Yeah, and um, and, 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 and I, just as part of that, um, I, I mentioned earlier one of the problems we had with FISA was that it had a set of definitions that depended on or that drew from the communications technology that existed in 1978. And when that communications technology changed, it caused all sorts of havoc. And the the kind of holy grail here is to try to develop technology-neutral rules so that um, in we, with technologies changing as fast as they are now, you don't have laws that are outdated almost as soon as they're passed. A good example of, of, of uh, another example of that is the Stored Communications Act, right. which covers uh, the government's access to email, 
and has uh, a ridiculous distinction now between emails in, in storage for less than 180 days and emails in storage for more than 180 days that everybody agrees makes no sense, and yet Congress has been unable to fix it. That's pretty amazing. I do look back at the very limited history on legislative history on ECPA, and I see that when Louis Free testified, he said uh, that there would never be a case where law enforcement would need to get location information. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, I had forgotten that, but you but but you remind me. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been really a pleasure to have you here. This is Bob Litt. Uh, former general counsel of ODNI, among other things, during his highly accomplished career. We're really glad you came in finally. I thought we were going to have to capture you somewhere, <laughs> throw a net over you, and just drag you up here in some sort of rendition. But I'm glad you finally made it. Um, I hope that you'll come back to us because this has been fun, and I think it's it's good for our listeners to hear someone with your experience giving this kind of a view uh, of what I think are these very important, um, timely legal issues and aren't going away tomorrow, regardless of what Congress does. No. And we will be sure to include Bob's Yale Law Journal article on this topic in the notes to this podcast. And obviously, once again, we'll include the links to Carpenter, um, both Kat's opinions, um, as well as we'll also uh, the Antoine Jones case as well, um, so that you can take a look at those things and watch, watch yourself, read for yourself, and learn the evolution that's described herein. Um, Bob's bio is also in the notes for those of you who would like to get a sense of his amazing background, especially young lawyers. I think this would be um, something you should take a minute and take a look at. And it will also help you understand why he has reached the point he has and could be such an authoritative voice on this topic. So for our listeners tonight, you can find links to the Black Letter Law, articles on today's topic also at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. Our website is AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity. You can also drop us a note at NationalSecurity at AmericanBar.org. Follow us on Twitter at ABANatSec or find us on our Facebook page. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week for National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for the American Bar Association. The views expressed on National Security Law Today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.